Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org and please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. All right, tonight we're... uh... Supposed to be doing a prophecy update, and I put supposed out there because um, we are going to talk about end time events from First Thessalonians, and we'll probably look at it again. In fact, I spent a bit of my morning mapping out the Wednesdays that we do the prophecy updates going through First and Second Thessalonians. And I actually began yesterday studying Second Thessalonians and worked preparing a message until about noon today, and then I shifted gears in the afternoon, and I knew I was coming back to do that, and got us into First Thessalonians instead. So I don't have a lot of, I don't have any. I didn't have time to look at events going on in the world. It seems like whatever's happening today, something else will be happening tomorrow. We can't keep up with whether... It's uh, trains or balloons or horrific uh, shootings at uh, large venues like shopping malls or uh, colleges we learned of yesterday. But there is one event that I did want to mention, and I don't know, I kind of have this attitude of wait and see what the Lord does with it, but there's a university, a college down in Kentucky called Ashbury, that in 1970, there was a revival that broke out. And I would encourage you, just look up Ashbury 1970 revival, and you'll find a one-hour documentary that during that revival, um, the news media showed up, NBC showed up, and the uh, anchorman or news forecaster who was there to see what was going on at this revival that broke out at Ashbury was so overwhelmed by what he was seeing, he went and got his wife and brought her to experience what God was doing at that college. Well, in 1970s, it kind of was part of that same, uh, which I think is amazing, the Jesus revolution, Jesus movement that had already began to birth in California through the Calvary Chapel movement. This, to me, was just another leg of it. In fact, this church building was also built as a result of the Lord uh, descending upon this place all around the same time period. And so it was the Holy Spirit pouring out in California. Uh, We know in Kentucky, even this little building where they went from 60, I think 30 or 40 people to 300 in like six months. And that was here when this was called the Gospel Ranch. But it's all back in those late 60s, early 70s, the Ashbury Revival is 1970. And uh, the Spirit of God just broke out on a morning chapel and it didn't stop for a number of days. Well, that happened last Wednesday, 
and the chapel service is still going on at Ashbury today. And uh, we'll see what God does with that. On Sunday, the people who were, nobody's really running it, but they encouraged the students to go to your home churches and tell them what's going on here. And so Sunday was pretty thin crowd there because the students went to their home churches. And in 1970, the Lord called the students out and sent them across the United States um, with the revival. So I think we've been praying for revival. We might have evidence of something breaking out at Ashbury once again. So be praying for the students there and praying for the work that God's doing and that it would spread across our nation once again. Lord knows we need revival. So we're going to be looking at First Thessalonians tonight and covering in our, I have three sections and covering in chapters one, two, and three, just picking out two or three verses in each of those chapters where Paul referred to the Lord coming again. And then when we get to chapter four, he does, beginning in verse 13, he, and 13 through 18, he does an extended teaching about the Lord coming again. And so we'll use our second two points dealing with the passage from First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. But really talking about eschatology in the last days or the doctrine of last things. That's what eschatology means, the doctrine of last things. And that deals with end-time events of the last days that cover really a large period. When I think about all, when the Bible talks about the last days, um, the coming of Jesus, all the things that are included in that, well, a minimum of 1,007 years according to the Word of God because wrapped up in all of that, in the second coming of Jesus, it includes the regathering of Israel into her land, which took place, uh, they became a state again on May 14, 1948. Uh, it includes the rapture of the church, the seven years of tribulation, the second coming of Jesus, his millennial reign upon the earth. There's going to be the final judgment of all things, the believers going to the Bema Seat judgment of Christ, unbelievers going to the great white throne judgment of God. And finally, the Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth. So they're partly getting it right. The climate change conspiracy people. And if you keep up with climate change and, and if you have kept up with it, I haven't, but uh, in the sense of they've been talking about the world coming to an end about every 12 years since I was a teenager. And uh, it's been a little while since I've been a teenager. And they haven't gotten it right yet. But God said that one day this earth will burn up and there'll be a new heaven and new earth. So all those things encompass at least one thousand seven years the doctrine of last things and Paul talks about that in first and second Thessalonians and uh, it's been a while since I taught from first and second Thessalonians so 
for uh, until it, we get through this. And I'm kind of going to speed it up. I'm not doing verse by verse, but a few of the sections I will go verse by verse. Uh, in our tonight and the next few months, when we have a prophecy update, we'll be looking at these two epistles, looking at eschatology, the doctrine of last things. So I really wanted to focus our attention on the Lord's future return when he comes with power and great glory at the end of the age. So we begin with Paul talking about in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he keeps referring to before he really teaches on the subject, when he gets into chapters 4 and 5, he does a little more teaching on the subject. And Second Thessalonians, where I began studying today, is largely about the coming of Christ. So he's really got to ramp it up. But I wanted to look back at how he was beginning to introduce the coming of Jesus Christ. And we first look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where he says, For they themselves declare concerning us, what manner of entry we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we first learn uh, Paul referring to the radical change that had taken place in the lives of the believers there in Thessalonica, having turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So we don't read of any kind of idol that they worship. Uh, Scripture's kind of silent on that. But this area and this city, Thessalonica, because of their loyalty to Antony and Octavian, they were given the status, the privilege of being a free city in the Roman Empire. And it's said to have been one of the most populous cities in Macedonia. One of their own poets referred to it as the mother of all Macedonia. And so this was the epicenter in Macedonia of idol worship, it appears. It's where everybody went for commerce. Uh, there was freedom from Rome, having been deemed a free city. And they were highly regarded in the Roman Empire. But when Paul and Silas came with Timothy, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ there, they were accused in Acts 17:6 of turning the world upside down. For those in Thessalonica, their world was turned upside down from the things that they had known because people began to give their heart over to Jesus and they began to set aside the idols and began to worship them no more. The change was so drastic. They said, these are they that are turning the world upside down. But that was not the truth. That's what the world expressed regarding Paul and Silas and Timothy. In reality, they were causing the people's worlds to be turned right side up. 
So there was a radical change that had taken place. They went and presented the gospel to a people who had never heard of, perhaps never heard of Jesus before in these missionary journeys of Paul. He always wanted to go and lay a foundation for Christ where the gospel had not been preached before. And as a result of that, they were accused of turning the world upside down. Second, we find that they were waiting for the Son from heaven, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, it's obvious that Paul and his missionary team evangelized the city of Thessalonia by preaching the gospel of God's coming judgment and Jesus coming again. But the amazing thing is that they were only there for a short period of time. And so they dove into some pretty deep topics as far as eschatology is concerned before they departed. And he writes about it and reminds them of it here in the letter. The believers had set their hope on Jesus and that he would deliver them from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10 We'll most likely look at this next month, but for tonight, just reading a reference from that portion of Scripture. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. God did not appoint us to wrath. I like to hang on to that passage of scripture when talking with people about end time events. And they say, well, you can't can't know. It could be that the church will go through the tribulation. And uh, I often will remind them, it's like, no, the Bible tells us that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. And so we'll be talking a bit about that as we go through First and Second Thessalonians over the next few months. Secondly, in chapter 2, in verses 19 and 20, he speaks about our hope, joy, and crown of rejoicing. Paul writes it this way, For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and our joy. So Paul is asking the church in Thessalonica, what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown? Well, it's you, the church. When the Lord comes again, we get to present you before the Lord as our offering. This becoming our glory and our joy. Paul had fixed his eyes on the second coming of Jesus Christ. He was thinking about future rewards of the work of ministry that the Lord had called him to alongside with Silas and Timothy as he, I keep saying them because 1 Thessalonians 1.1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that these three men had their name on this letter. 
And Paul here in chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, he's looking forward to the Lord's coming and the reward that he would have, the church itself, that crown of rejoicing. Now, in the New Testament Greek, there are two types of crowns, the Stephanus and the diadem. A Stephanus was a victor's crown. It was that wreath that they made from um, ivy or tree branches that when they would have the Corinthian games or the Olympic games of Greece and they would stand on the podium, they would put a wreath, a Stephanus crown. It was a victor's crown, but it was also a temporary crown. It would dry up, it would wither. The diadem always refers to kingly or imperial dignity. And so in the New Testament, it speaks about several crowns for believers. In 2 Timothy 4.8, we find that there will be a crown of righteousness. 1 Corinthians 9.25, he mentions an imperishable crown. In 1 Thessalonians 2.19, the crown of rejoicing. In 1 Peter 5, 4, the crown of glory. And in James 1, 13, the crown of life. I don't know what kind of crowns will be waiting for us when we get to heaven, whether it will be a crown of righteousness, an imperishable crown, a crown of rejoicing, a crown of glory, a crown of life. But we need to remember that Jesus Christ bore a Stephanos, an imperishable crown, a perishable crown of thorns that he might place upon us imperishable crowns, crowns of rejoicing, crowns of righteousness, crowns of glory, crowns of life. And no doubt Paul wanted to hear Jesus say, as in Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Paul asked the Corinthians, what is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of rejoicing? And then he said to the Corinthians, it is you. And then chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, when mentioning the coming of Jesus, he speaks about being established blameless. In verse 11, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Now may our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you. So he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. So once again, he mentions in the first three chapters the coming of Jesus. Paul had a great desire to return to the church there in Thessalonica, but we don't know if he ever made it. Scripture is silent to that. But he desired for the church to increase and to abound. He wanted them to increase, to become rich in love. As he told them, 
to increase and to abound in love. He wanted them to increase, to become rich in love, but also to abound. It's a Greek word that refers to overflowing, to have a great abundance. And of both of these, whether abounding or increasing, he wanted it to be in love. And the type of love that he refers to here is agape. I like to describe agape as a giving love that expects nothing in return. He may refer to phileo, a brotherly love, at other portions, and he does in his epistles. But here specifically, he's talking about agape or agapeo, a giving love that expects nothing in return. And Paul is painting a picture to the church there in Thessalonica and to us of God's rich agape love flowing up from within us and overflowing into the lives of the people around us to both believers and unbelievers. He said, I want you guys to increase and to abound in love to one another and to all. One of the great passages regarding love that was written by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. It describes agape by saying this, Love suffers long and is kind. Love, love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And may our Father establish this unfailing love in each of our hearts that we may become rich to overflowing in the great abundance of God's agape love toward the church, those within the church and those outside of the church. For it is Jesus who has established our hearts blameless in holiness before our God, having paid the price of our sin to reconcile us back to the Father. He has established us blameless. Is the work of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Again, possibly looking at this next month, but just reading these two verses as he closes out his letter. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who will also do it. Who preserves us blameless? Not us. It's the work of Jesus Christ. He is faithful, and Paul says he will also do it. So are you, am I, increasing and abounding in the agape love toward one another and to all as we await our Lord's coming? I hope that you are. So we, I just wanted to kind of pick up in that first point, that in each of the opening chapters of First Thessalonians, and only five chapters long, Paul mentioned the coming of Jesus Christ in each of the first three chapters. But now, 
as we get to chapter 4, he gets into a little more detail when we begin in verse 13. I titled verses 13 and 14, We Are Not to Be Ignorant, or Don't Be Ignorant. He says this in verse 13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. It appears that Timothy reported to Paul that the church in Thessalonica was confused about our Lord's second coming. Paul had sent Timothy back to the church there to see how they were doing. And Paul came back, reported to, Timothy came back, reported to Paul. Paul penned this letter. And there was communication going back between the church in Thessalonica and Paul. And they were a little confused about the Lord's second coming. This is because while they were waiting for Jesus to return, some of their believers in the fellowship had had died. They had passed on. And they were thinking that because they died before Jesus returned, that means they don't get to go to heaven. They were confused. And Paul wanted to straighten it out, and he does it for us. Here He began by saying, I don't want you guys to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. Especially since, well, in our day and age, so many believers in our churches are ignorant of these very things. Today, the lack of teaching on the end times in our churches has left many believers ignorant concerning last day events. Many believers, many pastors themselves. For example, several years ago, a a friend of mine was asked by one of the area pastors, why are Calvary chapels so focused on the pre-tribulational rapture of the church? And my friend rightly responded, their position on these events helps them to interpret the Bible. So we have uh, here at Calvary Chapel Lake Villa, I I mentioned this, I think, in January on a Sunday morning. But we believe that Jesus is coming again. We believe that he will first rapture the church, that there will be seven years of tribulation, that there will be a great tribulation in the middle of those seven years that the Lord Jesus Christ will come at the end of that time to set up his kingdom upon the earth. And so we have a position that we hold as Calvary chapels, but also as we teach through the Bible, it kind of gives us that understanding, a reinforcing that we are not to be ignorant on these things. So many pastors, they have today set aside the teaching of eschatology, and they are suddenly... Well, it depends on what's going on. We have kind of a split difference going on in our churches today that there are pastors who have set aside eschatology, the teaching of last days. They're not looking for the Lord Jesus Christ to come at any time and nor do they expect him to come. And in many churches in our nation today and parts of the world, 
It's more of a social gospel that they are teaching. And they are trying to adopt the church to fit with whatever the culture might be going through. Whether it goes against the word of God or not, it doesn't matter to them. They say that God is adaptive to our culture. But we know that is not true according to the word of God. That God has given us standards by which we should conduct ourselves. And you have other pastors who, over the last few years, seen everything kind of ramp up from pandemics to balloons. Who knows what's going to be next week? Wars and rumors of wars. They're trying to play catch up because they've gotten away from teaching about last day events. And they and their congregations have become ignorant concerning many of the end time events that will precede Jesus' second coming. In Luke 21:31, So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Jesus, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the Synoptic Gospels, and all of them, they spent time in that last week that Jesus was here in Jerusalem before he was crucified on the cross talking about last day events. The disciples asking Jesus, when will these things be? And Jesus explained what the conditions will be like at that time. And then he told the church, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. So it tells us that we are to be aware of these things. We're not to be ignorant. We're to keep up on prophecy on last day events, things given to us in scripture and how they fit in eschatology. So Paul, he referred to those who sleep concerning those who have fallen asleep. He said, I don't want you to be ignorant lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. So in the New Testament, it was a common way for those who died to just Describe it as those who went to sleep. It's not talking about soul sleep. It's not talking about laying dormant until the Lord comes again. Because scripture tells us if we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. And even Jesus used this phrase when Lazarus died. And he was made aware of it. And he waited around a few days. And then he told his disciples, our friend Lazarus sleeps. But I will go and wake him up. John 11, 11. And when the disciples heard Jesus say that Lazarus sleeps, they were thinking, good, he's getting better. He's resting. He must be recovering from his illness. And then Jesus had to say to them, John 11:14, Lazarus is dead. So when in the New Testament, and they talk about Believers sleeping is talking about their physical death on this earth, but not talking about any type of soul sleep. As we know, Second Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the death of for believers is often referred to as sleep because it's through our death that we not only go to be with Jesus, but we find our rest. Jesus said in Matthew 11:28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
And although we may sorrow when a loved one dies or goes to sleep in this passion, fashion here, as we're reading about right now, our sorrow is not to be like those who have no hope in Jesus because death has no victory over those who believe in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15:55 through 57 reminds us, Death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 14, he says, If we believe, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Still using that term. So he said, I don't want you to be ignorant about those who have fallen asleep. If you believe that Jesus died and rose again, when he comes again, those who currently are sleeping in Jesus, well, they're going to come with him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Though Jesus died, his death was unlike any who had died before him or since. For the word of God tells us in 1 Corinthians 15:3, For I deliver to you first of all that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus' vicarious, propitious, atoning death on the cross has fully paid the price of our sins. We have not been redeemed by corruptible things, Peter said, like silver or gold from our aimless conduct by the traditions of our our fathers. What could be meant by that? First Peter 1.18, by the traditions of our fathers. Well, for many years in the United States, a number of people and still many today believe that they are Christian because they were born into a family that identified as Christians, went to church, but Many of these have never accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. They just deem that because their parents were Christian, then I must be Christian too. Well, it's not received by tradition. It's not received by bloodline. It doesn't pass down that way. It's received by the blood of Christ himself. In 1 Peter 1.19, by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish or spot. So not by our human uh, heritage or bloodline, but through the blood of Jesus Christ. For Jesus not only died for our sins, but he rose from the grave. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He proved to the whole world through his resurrection that he has power over the grave. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 4, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Therefore, since Jesus has died, he has rose again, we can trust that all believers who have died in Christ will return with him at the second coming. So Philippians 3, 20 and 21 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies that we may be conformed to his glorious body, 
according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. Just remember, we are not to be ignorant about these things. In this case, as far as eschatology is concerned, ignorance is not bliss when it comes to our faith in Jesus Christ. We are to study to show ourselves approved. And finally, chapter 4, verses 15 through 18, 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, by the word of the Lord, verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of our Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. So this we say to you by the word of the Lord. It's kind of like you have my word on this. And that's a phrase when we use it to others that really when someone says that, you know, it's my word, I give you my word. It speaks about honor. It speaks about integrity. But here Paul is saying it's by the word of the Lord. This is his word that I'm giving to you. And I'm sure Paul could have said, you have my word on this. But he made it even better. That which I receive from the Lord, I give to you. We looked at that on Sunday. Through the revelation of Jesus Christ, you have the Lord's word on this. In Galatians 1, verses 11 and 12, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught by it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul said, I got this from Jesus. Those who have died in the Lord are not waiting in a soul sleep until Jesus comes again, that they might be raised into glory, but are in the presence of the Lord, will come with the Lord when he returns for his church, those who are alive and present at that coming. So we won't precede those who sleep in Jesus, but we'll meet them in the air. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There will be a day in which is called the rapture of the church, when Jesus will return for the church to prevent those who are living to go through that tribulation period that is prophesied in the Bible, the seven years of tribulation. First Thessalonians 1.10, we've already read this. Even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. First Thessalonians 5.9 For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to come with a shout, with a cry of excitement, or the stimulating cry, whatever that shout will be like. That Greek word is only found here in the New Testament. And it is likened to the cry of an army going out into battle. I jokingly was working on a house. And one of the brothers here at the church was helping him. And when I was 18 years old, one of my first full-time jobs I had was hanging gutters with my 
friend's dad, and my friend, but I mean, his dad worked in the office, but we were out there hanging gutters. So I know a little bit about putting aluminum gutters up on houses. I did it for uh, a whole summer, and we got paid by the foot. I think I got 13 cents a foot. So if I was going to make money, I had to get a lot of footage up in a day, and we made money. So I was helping one of the guys. He knew that I had that. And uh, it was about the end of the day. We had almost everything done. And I dropped a screw, so I scrambled down the ladder, acting like I was a teenager again, but I am not. And I went up the ladder quickly again, and one of the legs came up. It was a step ladder, but I lost balance, and I went down flat and hard on a slab of concrete. And when I yelled, I think probably a three-block radius would have heard that yell. Think of uh, some of the old uh, war cries that we might see with the uh, knights and armor and swords. That's the kind of cry that I had. It was loud. It hurt bad. And I gimped to my truck and left immediately after that happened. The shout that Jesus is going to have is going to be much louder than that. In fact, he comes with the voice of an archangel. Now, only two archangels are named for us in Scripture, Michael and Gabriel. Some, the Catholic Church describes Raphael. Other archangels are mentioned but not named in Revelation 8.2. And Satan may have held this position before his fall. As we look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, But Jesus will shout with the voice of an archangel. He will descend with the trumpet of God. And in the Bible, in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Numbers, we learned and are learning. So we've already learned in Numbers 10, verses 2 and 10, that trumpets were used to call the people to a solemn assembly of people to worship God to the feast days. They would use trumpets. But we'll learn also in Numbers 31.6, they were used to call people to war. So here it's used to summon the elect of God, just preceding their glorification with Christ. In Matthew 24.31, the Lord said, And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Perhaps one day we will hear the voice of Jesus shouting with the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. When he comes for his elect, we will hear the multitude, maybe of voices coming with him, along with the archangels like Gabriel and Michael. It will be a glorious day, no doubt. For it tells us in verse 17, Then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So one of the big arguments that you hear when you talk about having uh, a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial, believing in the rapture, they will say that, well, the word rapture never appears in the Bible. 
So that's just something that get used to it. If you talk about it, you'll probably hear this. But also remember 1 Thessalonians 4.17 and those two words, caught up. Because that is the Greek word herpazo. And herpazo means literally to be snatched away or taken away by force. In the Latin Vulgate, they translated harpazo to raptus. And we have taken and translated that to rapture. And so it is in the Bible. It's just using the Greek word harpazo. That's where we get the word rapture from. And it's right here in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us of this mystery. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Here Paul teaches that not all believers will die before they go physically. They won't have physical death, but will be a change will be caught up will be changed from corruptible to incorruptible from mortal to immortality according to 1 Corinthians 15:53 it will be for you tracky fans one of those beam me up scotty moments except this time it'll be Jesus calling us up There will be a day when Jesus will gather his church to be with him forever. Right now, the church is separated in many ways. While on this earth, we meet in many different locations throughout the world. Those who sleep, they've already resting in Jesus, having put off their physical body of corruption to put on immortality. And one day Jesus will catch up his church to be with him in the air forever. And the Lord said about these, in verse 18, Therefore comfort one another with these words. We live in a church age where the Lord said, Don't be ignorant, Paul. Don't be ignorant about these things. In fact, learn so much about it that you can comfort the brothers and sisters with these words. And we live in a church age where it's like, I don't know, man. I'm a... It'll all pan out, you know. I'm a panel panel mentalist or something. It'll all pan out in the end. It's like it doesn't matter to me. Well, personally, I think it matters that we should study to show ourselves approved, that we should take the Word of God, comfort one another with the Word of God. These words, he was talking about the Lord's second coming. He was talking about the Lord coming for his church. And we need to be talking about that as well today. This is to be a comfort to the church. This is because whether we are alive on this earth or resting in Jesus in paradise or our location will not exclude us from the plans of God. No matter when the Lord returns for his church, whether you've already gone to be with him or here on this earth, we'll be caught up together, we'll be changed from corruption to incorruption, from mortality to immortality, to be with the Lord forever. And I find great comfort in this truth, and I hope that you do as well. 
Father, thank you for this word you've given us tonight. And I know, Lord, I said we were going to do a prophecy update tonight, and I just ended up studying this passage. And, uh, Lord, I pray that this is truly what you wanted me to present to this church body tonight. Just to be reminded of these things, that we would not be ignorant of these things. So, Lord, help us to learn as we go through over the next few prophecy updates. We'll be looking at First and Second Thessalonians, and we'll talk about events again that's going on in our world. But we'll be reminding ourselves of last day events. And perhaps, Lord, we'll be able to see where we fit in the signs of the times. Tonight, Lord, I do want to just pray for there in Kentucky at Ashbury University where the chapel, Lord, as far as I know, is still continuing. That began last week where people are just there in worship around the clock waiting upon you. They have said that revival has broken out. It is my prayer that it has and that it would spread across our land. We know, Lord, that in 1970, a similar thing happened at that same area, at the same college. They have a college and university, so I'm not sure which chapel was at play in the 1970s. But you moved your spirit upon that place once before, Lord. We pray that we are seeing it happen again. We pray, Lord, that it would spread across our land into our churches that, Lord, many would come to faith. Our need is great. The world is a mess. But, Father, you sent your Son to redeem us, to save us, that we might walk with you. So we thank you, Lord, this evening. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's go ahead and stand. There is women's breakfast this coming Saturday. Lily's been studying for the ladies. Um, Even had uh, some Bible questions for me. So you guys get to uh, get a little of my input through Lily on this one. And uh, I explained this on Sunday. I thought maybe the author was trying to think too deeply on a subject that maybe, I don't know, You'll have to find out on Saturday for the ladies. But um, for us, we'll be back together on Sunday, and we're looking at Jesus. We're going to begin with Jesus walking on the water. Pray that God would bless you and keep you, that his face would always shine upon you and give you peace. God bless you.